Hi, I'm Gio. And I'm Renee, and this is Listen To Me Podcast, where you get all the greatest in unqualified advice from qualified creatives. Basically, we go through it so you can reconnect with your passion in whatever way you need to keep creating. Yes! <laughs> can you, like, cue a choir of angels over that? <laughs> les louanges, les louanges. I found this thing that you can do where you can make things like echo or sound like specific things that like effects <laughs> like it's in, in a church. Just select a section of the audio and make <laughs> it like sound a certain way. And there's yeah. all these different features. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> I think I, having watched so much Drag Race recently, I feel like you are bringing the RuPaul school of sound effects into all of our recording sessions because... <laughs> There was like a couple different times in the new episodes where she was like, like when she was talking about like phenomenon, phenomenon, phenomenon. Uh-huh. I was like, oh my God, that's where Geo got it. <laughs> I just like, cause also other ones, other podcasts I listen to, they do the same thing where <laughs> they will like throw things in. And I like that cause it's like, yes. it's fun. So it's, it's visual or it's visual. It's audio interest. It's like yeah. visual interest, but audio interest. Yeah, exactly. You heard back the- Oh uh... my God, the episode with the- <laughs> air horns clay could hear it upstairs in his office and he was like what the fuck is that (laughs) are you playing with a soundboard right now and i was like no this is the new episode of our podcast that geo mixed i won't be putting it in all the time you're gonna deafen people i made it really low the audio (laughs) when i was listening to it it did not sound low it was like the same volume as everything else (laughs) yeah that's what i mean i lowered it to the the voices so it was louder it was louder oh my god so i'm really excited to talk to yet another one of my book club buddies today the last time we had a new cambrian group member on the show it was davis Mm -hmm. and today we're talking to emily campbell so she's actually the founder of the group i didn't know that started the book club and the writing group because we function as both so she runs book club sessions um actually we take turns leading them we pick the books and then we discuss but then Mm -hmm. she usually leads the writing exercise sections and they're really fun it's really nice it's such a great community especially for just connecting and talking about our challenges and our triumphs with writing and we have another group member leanne johnson they're an illustrator as well and they've covered anti-langorous magazine they covered anti-langorous magazine one of their previous issues so it's really cool it's really cool listening to everybody's input and we have quite a great group so i'm really looking forward to talking to emily about why she decided to put the group together and how things have evolved for her and her own writing. How often are you guys meeting? Uh, We meet like bi-monthly, so just about two times a month. Okay, so that's like in some way a commitment where you're engaging with other people and it's all online, I'm assuming. Yeah, now it used to be in person and Emily and her partner had their flat open to us and we would go there but and it sucks because they moved right before the pandemic and they moved a lot closer to me because it used to be like a solid like 35 minutes on the highway for me to get down there to their place oh, okay because i was going downtown but they moved literally like 13 minutes away from me but we haven't been able to meet in person because of the goddamn pandemic so <laughs> <laughs> i'm like waiting i'm like this is gonna be so much easier I was listening to an episode of uh, Why Won't You Date Me with Nicole Byer. Yes. And it was with Conan. It was the most recent one. Okay. Conan O'Brien. And she says pandemic because that's where I started saying it from. Was I her. also definitely got it from Nicole because I just listened to the episode with Jiggly Caliente. And so she says pandemic and he's like, no one says that. It's like, we're not calling it that. Oh, like, we are calling it that <laughs> And I was now. like, Shut I up, love Conan. it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh my God. Nicole on RuPaul's Drag Race was fucking phenomenal. She was wearing a custom made reproduction of... Of the Michelle Visage outfit that Crystal Method made. Oh, is that what that was? Yes. And Got she, it. because after I remember the drag her episode after the night of a thousand Michelle Visages episode aired, mm-hmm. and 
Nicole said, if anybody can make me a version of what Crystal Method wore, I will wear it every day. And she found somebody to make it for her. And she looks fucking amazing. Yeah, I love her so much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's go talk to Emily. (laughs) I just realized your mug says don't talk yet. And that is so funny. I love it. Hello. I can't see you, but I can hear you. Oh, now I can there, see you. There I am. There I am. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi. <laughs> the entity known as Geo. The legend. Yeah, the legend. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh the person, the uh, myth, the legend. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hi, Geo. Nice to meet you. You as well. I've heard such good things. I expected them to be bad things too, but that's okay. I didn't tell him about your fan fiction exploits. Don't worry. <laughs> Okay, now that you and Colin have both found me, I'm just like, I don't care anymore. Y'all can find out. Yes. Yeah. What's the fanfic that you like to write? I'm currently working on fanfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it very naughty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've been I've been in fanfiction since I was like 15. And I have to say, I think the whole point of it is to kind of skew in directions that the creators never intended it to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Obviously, you know Davis. Yes. So Davis and I are working on a, I'm creating, helping him create like a visual. We actually talked this weekend for his online post-apocalyptic gay sex simulator game. Yes. Yes. And so part of it involves drawing se- like sex scenes. And I was like, yes, <laughs> like this is going to be so fun. <laughs> Well, it's, it's good. It's good anatomy practice, right? Because there, there's things that you're like, oh, God, did I just break this guy's leg? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> no pain, with, no gain. Yeah, with, let's break some fucking shins. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's okay. I will I will never forget my, um, my one Starbucks shift supervisor who was trying to quit smoking and who, ironically, we found out that we had both gone to the same hometown. He's struggling hard. He's so angry. And I'm like, are you like, what do you need? And he's just like, shakes one of these giant garbage cans that we have in the back is like i need a dildo like this big to relieve this tension like, <laughs> that is a spiritual sister to geo right there that's what you're describing yes put me in touch with him <laughs> <laughs> for innocent purposes clearly only i think he got married to a guy in mexico i don't know oh. we, we fell out of touch interesting twist i like it living mm-hmm. his best life clearly <laughs> i hope so he deserved it oh my god do you want to just talk to us we already kind of talked about this because we were talking about fan fiction but do you want to tell us a little bit about what why and how you write so i always introduce myself as being a a poet or a writer generally speaking but the fact of the matter is that i do uh, not just poetry but i also do short stories a much younger version of me wrote longer form fiction particularly in the fantasy high fantasy genre and as a student or former student, I guess I also do academic papers and, and things of a research nature. And in all of these cases, the the how I write often starts with that little spark, that little idea that you get, uh, and that just won't let you go. Not that you can't let go of it, but the idea has you by the collar and is shaking you and is saying, write me. Um, Trying to break your legs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> shin breaking. Yeah. yeah, the shin breaking ideas. And sometimes they pop up out of nowhere as like an actual fully formed sentence. Sometimes it's a visual concept. Sometimes it's something that you go, oh, like I want to, I want to play with this. And then it just goes from there. My best writing tends to be the writing that just kind of flows automatically. The stuff that I have to fight with, I'm generally less satisfied with, but that's more often the case when you're having to make arguments in academic writing in essays, papers, et cetera. Currently also doing fan fiction. Um, Yeah. But but that's its own thing. I know so many people, I was having another conversation with another friend who is unrelated to my main circle of writer friends who was talking about how she is really struggling to commit to reading books right now. Reading like text-based games and fan fiction is her way of escaping. And I think what I love about fan fiction is that in some ways it puts less demands on us than traditional writing. Like it's just so much easier to engage and you can get that sweet, sweet dopamine hit with a little bit less effort. I would say in that case, as a reader, 
one of the things that's made easier for you is the fact that assuming it's a fandom or, or a world that you're already familiar with, you know the characters, you yes. know their traits, you don't have to wait for the development there. And in fact, if you're dropped in the middle of the story, you also already know what's happening. So you have antecedent action that doesn't require explanation. And likewise, as a writer, then the struggle of coming up with the motivations for the characters, you're, you're given something that's already mostly baked. And then you can decide if you want to add icing, if you want it to be thick crust, thin crust, uh, what kind of toppings you want on it. You can just continue to develop the experience and the flavor of what you've been given. And that makes it easier. But it's not to say that it's any less impactful or less powerful than your usual novels or narratives, because there's things out there that I kid you not, based on word count alone, are literally three times longer Mm -hmm. than War and Peace. Yep. And that are still ongoing, you know, fix that have been in the works for 20 years that people are still writing and that deal with very heavy concepts that are not at all for kids, even if the medium that it's being drawn from is, you know, aimed at people eight years old. And I think that's particularly powerful and that you can explore these things like essentially they're literary masterpieces, but, you know, it's someone who feels like they're walking around in clown shoes on the internet who's writing them but it's such a great vehicle and like so to tie this back to my original question do you think because I think as writers we are readers first a lot of the time so do you think that being a reader and I'm gonna dare to call you like an impassioned reader because I feel like people (laughs) who produce fic fit that description do you think that that is what allowed you to discover yourself as a writer and kind of claim space as a writer you know I first started writing when I was about 10 years old my my primary sense of adventure and of play was from books and was from things that I was reading and I was one of those like so-called gifted individuals who was reading four grades above their reading level, supposedly. I mean, in my mind, every book's a kid's book if the kid can read, but here we are. (laughs) And uh, what got me going was a sense of I had characters and I had worlds and I was drawing maps and the whole thing. It was escapism for a child and, and an exploration of self. And I definitely was trying to push boundaries and explore concepts because I was reading things that were too old for me. I didn't really understand. And then I was trying to replicate because that's what you do when you start out with something. You're not really drawing from necessarily a pure well of originality, but are in fact mimicking some of what it is that you do. The passion for it though, I think got tangled up somewhere along the line is because as soon as people find out that you do something, oh, you know, you're the sporty kid. Oh, mm-hmm. you're you're the posh kid. You're you're the baby kid. All of a sudden I'm listening off Spice you're Girls. You're the Spice um, Girl kid. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. was Geo. He was just all of them at the same time. Girl Excellent. power. <laughs> Um, I I was the writer kid. I was the weird writer kid. And that became my identity. And at a point, you kind of feel like you have to continue with that. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be the artist kid. I also wanted to draw. But there was somebody else who filled that niche. And I felt like I couldn't take that away from them. So my art skills are now atrocious. And I kind of resent that. But at least I can write. (laughs) Returning to the point of finding out about that passion is stepping away from that and feeling like it's not something that I have to do because that's what other people expect of me or that's what other people know me as. And in fact, why I don't really do long form fiction anymore and why I do poetry more often is I thought, I'm going to try this. This sounds fun. And then it feels fun and it mm-hmm. is good to do. And so now that's kind of the pool that I swim in as this little literary fish. And it's it's mine. And that's something that I've discovered and have made my own as opposed to something that has been pushed on me. You can tell you're a writer just in the way that you described. I'm sorry, the pizza reference or the pie, whatever crust you're talking about. That was about. making me hungry. I was like, I, I was sitting, I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, I follow. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I mean, like, I haven't had breakfast yet, so I'm also <laughs> it's so true though i totally agree with you with that the pressure that you put on yourself just based on the perception of your talent quote-unquote talent from other people and you're like now i have to be this thing and i have to like deliver and i have to be amazing at this thing but you're like but what if i also like this and this i don't know like renee and i have talked ad nauseum about you know diversifying what it is you do as a creative it's valid we all go through it what's weird though is that we don't talk about it (laughs) Well, we do. (laughs) We're talking about it now. Yeah, we talk a lot about it. (laughs) 
Let's talk about the hustle culture and the pressure writers feel to fit the mold. Get the MFA, apply for grants, publish in lit mags, chat books or some small novella, and then get the multi-million dollar book, you know, A, B, C leads to D, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think that linear process is harmful for writers who are trying to develop their craft and find their passion within the things that they do? Oh, man. I mean, on one hand, this is the hallmark narrative that kind of is consistently sold to us. And mm -hmm. so Ford, you know, little 10-year-old M, that's what you believe is going to happen. And especially so, I think, for, for writers, and I mean, Renee, this may resonate with you in particular, if you come from a small town, and if you come from a place that doesn't have a literary hub, the sense of being that creative person makes you kind of a real standout individual. And then that sense of, well, I'm going to be noticed, or mm -hmm. I'm going to move to the big city and I'm going to fit yeah. in also is the secondary feature to that narrative. And I think for anything, whether it's writers, uh, whether it's healing from trauma, whether it's your career path in dental hygiene, you know, a linear path is often not the way things go. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a lot more of a squiggle loop-de-loo and you go backwards half the time. And for some writers, this is how it works. And the industry, I think, still functions as though this is how it works. But there are missing pieces to that narrative that we end up having to discover ourselves. One of which is very few people teach you how to write those grants. I don't know how to write a grant. I still haven't figured it out. And in fact, I'm so afraid of it that I'm not going to bother attempting it. But I also don't feel like I need the money. And that's its own separate thing. So there's an awful lot of struggle in having to teach yourself how to do these things in order to fit into that linear process. Uh, and then there's also the fact that nobody explains to you how important and how essential the networking component at every single step along that way is. Yep. Your MFA, in a lot of ways, may be meaningless if you don't rub shoulders with the right people and if you don't commit to making those connections and if you don't work simultaneously during and then after that degree to maintain those connections with those people. And I say that as somebody who does not have an MFA, yeah. but who has just watched people and who knows from experience with the bachelor's degree that I do have that unless you are inserting yourself into spaces and claiming those spaces and are welcoming other people into those spaces, it doesn't serve the full function that it possibly has. And for writers who are often inherently, and creators in general often inherently, kind of introverted people who may struggle with making connections, who may struggle with networking, that's hard. And it's one of those unspoken rules that we also need to be addressing, I think, in that process because if you want to just sit down and write and you just want to put words on a page you're not playing the game the way that the gamekeepers have set the rules and as a result you're not going to win the game mm -hmm. which is weird because the people who sit down and put words to paper are the ones who are really genuinely doing the work but if you're not up. taking a picture of it and posting it on Instagram, are you even writing? Yes. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it even happen? And that's the thing, which I think this whole concept of proof of production or being witnessed in the act of your creation leads into some of the other questions and the sense of why are we having to sell ourselves? Why are we doing all of the work when it comes to getting traction and and essentially advertising ourselves and doing what I think you know some 30 years ago was entirely within the purview of an agent and of a publishing house mm -hmm. uh, and the writing industry in general writers are being asked to do 10 times more than they were ever supposed to be doing uh, and as a result I think that interferes with your writing I think that interferes with the health of the writers who are being pulled in so many different directions you know, that great line from Lord of the Rings that Bilbo says to Gandalf, and he's like, I'm like butter that's spread over too much bread. <laughs> I think uh, the burnout component of that is very real. But if you're lucky, and you do fit into that, because you do, I'm not saying that people who follow that linear trajectory are, are doing it wrong or are, are capitalizing off of something that's, that's harmful necessarily. Like sometimes it does, it does just fit. Sometimes you fit mm -hmm. that mold. I think that's great. But we need to recognize that that's not the way that it's going to be for probably 90% of the people who do write. And I think we need to start examining and critiquing that narrative that we've been fed as this is how you get noticed. This is how you get published. Because if you're defining yourself and your success by those standards, inevitably you are going to feel disappointed regardless of how well you are doing. When we're told by our elders, let's say, for example, like when I was in school, I would be told so many times, 
do this to get to this, work for the agency, grow, be an art director, whatever. And this is how you grow in your career. And on top of that, you know, you're saying how you're being asked to do way more nowadays than we would have had to in the past. Like, oh, you need to be a one-stop shop. You're not just a graphic designer. You have to learn code. You need to understand web. You need to be able to do any kind of editing. And you're like, how much can I do? It's going to take away from the message that I'm trying to create through yeah. whatever it is that I'm creating mm -hmm. to have to balance all these things. I'm like, I can't, I don't want to do web. That's not my gig. And I learned in my actual life, not in school life, you know, once you get into it, you're like, I can actually say, yeah. I don't want to do these things and you don't have to. But once again, you play the game in order to make those connections so that if it comes to that, depending on whatever your career is, you can lean on somebody who is a specialist in something else, right? So you don't have to be well and, and the worst part about that too is that you may be that three ring circus but you're only being paid for the one ring yes. girl yes <laughs> absolutely it's so annoying immediately here i have launched into well they're not paying you for your work they're not paying you for your work you know aha there's the capitalism there's my yep. little soapbox so much of what you said resonated emily i mean like to start with the whole big fish in a small pond moving to like even a medium-sized pond and realizing like wow i'm not the standout talent quote unquote that i thought i was lacking those connections like that was a huge experience for me moving through my bachelor's degree and thinking like i was going to be some kind of classicist or historian and lacking like i just had no drive to network with my academic peers because i hated it i hated mm -hmm. the ivory tower academic social set and i couldn't ingratiate myself into that group with the naked hatred of it on my face like do you <laughs> know what i mean it just made it really difficult so that to me I've heard the same thing about MFAs where it's like you are creating this community and there are all of these, I think like movements that are meant to counterbalance that as I hit my mic again, every time, especially in online spaces where people are trying to offer community spaces. But again, it's very focused on this hustle culture. And as you were saying, to me, hustle culture goes hand in glove with burnout culture. And we see more and more people are, so focused on the hustle side that they don't have any energy to put into the work side. Like, yeah. how do I do the work when I'm like trying to teach myself how to create a social media calendar so that I can cue my posts? If you got into writing because you wanted to write, why yeah. the hell are you doing anything other than writing? Yeah. I mean, in fairness, a social media cue actually saves a lot of time and stress. It's true. Now that I've learned how to do them, but... <laughs> And I think the other thing that needs to be mentioned, especially in academic spaces, perhaps less so with the online world, but this necessity of networking and coming to others for that foothold instead of having to carve it out for yourself leads to problems, leads to the whole Canlet Accountable movements and the recognition mm -hmm. and realization that professors and just big names in the community and big names in the industry wield an impossibly imbalanced set of power dynamics over people that are coming into it and as more voices and more diverse voices and more diverse experiences are being presented control what it is that we're hearing what it is that we're seeing and through that gatekeeping can abuse that power and also can recognize that they are being threatened by newer voices and newer names and keep yes. them out for as long as possible because they don't want to lose their own little corner of this world that in a lot of ways, like how, how much power do you really have if you are a writer? Like how much influence do you really have? How much money are we really making? Is it worth that kind of steepled fingers, schemey nonsense to, to hold on to? I don't know. I, I, I've accepted at this point that I'm never going to get into one of those academic corners. And so now I'm just kind of like, like why, why would you make it hard on others? But when it is your identity and when that is... Yes legitimately the only thing that you have that you're holding on to in some ways yeah. i can understand why people would hold on to that as tightly as possible i call it world so small syndrome and it's you see it everywhere like i see it working even in an office setting where it's like you are literally you find yourself fighting with a coworker about how to use the three hole punch properly their whole world is centered on that three hole punch and they will be damned if they are going to give up their authority about how to use the fucking three hole punch and yeah what you're talking about is at a much higher level but 
it really speaks back to the the problematic nature of that networking being so necess so necessary for emerging writers because really it's like it's not just about knowing how to be social like yeah creative people are introvert introverts and they might find it difficult to be kind of like engaging in cocktail social small talk but it's also about like you have to learn how to sell yourself you have to learn how to promote your own work you have to learn how to like i said ingratiate yourself with people whose morals or ethics you might not align with and that fucking sucks and nothing like kills my passion for writing a cool idea a shin breaking idea if you will <laughs> more than thinking like three steps further down the road and going like how would i be able to like pitch this in order to get it published or into a magazine like nobody's gonna want to look at this because i don't have the right connections or there's not a call for this because even even at the level of like lit mags and small lit mags there is still some amount of gatekeeping because it's the editors and the editor's sense of taste and selection that determines who gets put out. Oh yeah. And I mean, even in, in the local sphere, you know, there are people immediately locally that I'm like, I, you know what, I would rather die unpublished and unknown than have to be associated with you. Mm -hmm. And that's a choice I get to make. It just makes me sound bitter if I never do actually get published by this person <laughs> or these people. And I'm fine with it. Like whatever. Other people still get to, to rub shoulders with them and go forward. And it's not as though those people are tainted by that. Well, that's how you learn. I feel yeah. like I've done that a lot where, I mean, obviously like networking in the writing sphere is a bit different because for me, let's say like, you know, pandemic aside, I can go to an event and talk about what I do and just through conversation, like small talk, whatever. There's a connection there of like, oh, I could potentially use you if I'm a business owner or whatever. Yeah. But in the past, I've done that where I was just so desperate for work in general because I just wanted to build my portfolio so I could expand the business. And I would do work for people that in my heart of hearts, like, you know, that's that sixth sense that we have as humans. And I was like, I don't know. I don't really like this person. In, but they have a good title. They seem really well off. They have connections that I could benefit from. And then you play the game, right? Like you're saying, but then it always leads to like, this person's a dick and it's hard to work for them and whatever. Now I, I feel like you play the game and it's like, you don't like it, but you learn, you're looking back, like you said, you learn. Okay. Now listen to that intuition through authenticity, your talent, you align yourself with those who would make more sense for you to connect with and work with anyway. So you like learn how to navigate in so many ways, you know? And I think, Gio, I think your point there speaks automatically to the level that that you and Renee and I are at in our own creative careers is because we can already say these things and we already have this sense of looking back. Mm -hmm. your, your brand new writer who's starting out fresh from high school may not have that ability. Exactly. And yeah. It's a question of, do we want to create a world where they don't have to go through that? Yeah. Is this kind of compromise I guess is the word to use is this kind of compromise an essential part of the experience is it one that we figure we could do away with if we make the world a better place uh, mm -hmm. and and I don't have the answer for that right now mm -hmm. I look back on a lot of things and I'm like man that was shitty glad it happened though I kind of like the idea that through conversations like these and sort of people who are more invested in creating a collaborative and open and accessible community in certain creative spheres like writing or even like graphic design or photography or whatever, that we are moving away from this model of like, you, you gotta learn it. Like mm -hmm. maybe the hard way that this is, these are the choices that you have to make. And like, I do think that that goes to what you were talking about earlier, Emily, about people who are ferociously guarding their little corner of power in the writing community. And if we are moving away from that model, where it's like, we're not thinking about everything that we've gone through, the slogs that we've gone through to make it through the top, the faces we've kicked to get up here, you know what I mean? And we're thinking about lifting other people up and how, you know, like a rising tide lifts all boats and using that as our model as, and as our compass. It's that. <laughs> really different. Yeah, I heard that expression like a couple of years ago and I was like, oh, I, I'm going to keep this one. That's the kind of community that I would want to be part of because navigating these treacherous waters, if I'm going to extend the maritime net of metaphor, it can be really damaging to new writers, like to high school writers. Like, and I think that I experienced that as well, like for so many years. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. I just refused to take myself seriously as a writer because I was like, 
I'm just not cut out for this stuff. I'm not cut out to, to move through these channels. Like I know other people have had to, to get to the level of success that they have. But it's a, it's a definition or a level of success that they wanted. Mm -hmm. Was it necessarily the definition or the level that you wanted? I'm terrified of the idea of dropping the security of a nine to five job and making writing my living. I'm, I'm horrified by it. The best job I ever had was probably working for the McEwen student paper uh, as a writer for the Griff. I loved that. I got to interview people and go to cafes and review feud. And I mean, it was, it was a part-time gig and it was great and I loved it. I don't know if I could do that full time simply because journalism is going in a very different direction. That, that's its own thing. Gio and I know all about that because we just watched Venom with Tom Hardy. <laughs> I mean, truly, truly a, a pillar of information on, on the journalist industry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just has its finger on the pulse of journalism. So good. No, I, I mean, point being like, it, it gave me joy. That was one of the few things where I was consistently making money, doing the thing that I loved and thought, man, this would be great if this was my life. The nice thing about that, though, is that it still could be my life. I can choose to do that in the background of a larger, more stable career if I wanted to. And in fact, that's what I was doing for half of it. And, and you can make it work. And I really admire people who do just drop everything and say, no, this is it. I'm doing it. I'm taking the risk. I'm taking the plunge. Um, I have nothing but mad respect for anyone who says that's it. It's not me though. Uh, and I'm glad I no longer feel like a coward for, for recognizing that because that's what weighs on you a lot of the time is that definition of having to struggle and suffer for your art completely forever and always otherwise you're not legitimate yeah I just want to applaud you for like being honest and owning that because I do think that is a narrative that gets pushed a lot and especially if you're looking at like how to succeed in any creative industry one of the like tip top pieces of advice they'll give you is like, you, do you want to write? You're a writer. Like you make that decision and you decide and you're going to write. And you know what, for those of us, I will say this, I'm going to like open up my little social justice soapbox for those of us who grew up like blue collar and with any sort of trauma around financial stability, I just don't see that as being possible or it's very difficult because I know for myself, like my parents had so much fucking cumulative debt when I was a kid, they refused to talk about finances. And I still knew like, that's how bad it was. And I just can't do it. And my husband is very much the same. Like we both, when we first started working and we had disposable income and we had paid off our debts, heaved a simultaneous sigh of relief because it was a feeling that we had not experienced as children to be yeah. on solid financial footing. And I, I don't see how that would be possible if I were like to quit my nine to five to become a writer. It just like would not have happened. God, the lighting in my house is atrocious. You guys are just like looking so cute and fly and I'm just here just like a Furby without its fur. <laughs> incredible first of all i love that image i wish that they actually had made skinless furless furbies like oh. how funny would that be you know i think i just saw something on tumblr that was called a skin bee it was like on sale on a facebook marketplace in west virginia like it was cursed like don't look it up i am looking that up Stop! all right literally the intro to a horror film now mm. it's like yeah, now it's gonna go viral because you told us about it and then we're gonna die one by one on the flip side of everything we've already talked about You've had your poems published in Lita Literary Magazine and had an article in the Writers Guild of Alberta publication, Westward, which, by the way, love the name. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about your experience with being published? Well, those uh, were the most recent issues of publication that I've had. I've also been published in academic journals for Red Deer College, the Bolo Tai Collective, which is a writing student group from McEwen University that annually has produced an anthology of written work. Um, since its inception, which has been pretty incredible. And I've had a few other poems here and there in other publications. To be honest, there's the thrill of hunting for things that are open and that are calling for submissions. And there's the thrill of submitting things. And there's a real thrill in being paid and compensated yes. when I am published. Thank you to Westward and Lita and Auntie Lang for the compensations that I've received for that. But weirdly enough, every time it happens... 
I look over at someone and say, oh, I'm published now. I guess this means I'm a real writer, even though it's happened before. (laughs) (laughs) For me, what I'm coming to realize is that as amazing as it is to be able to say, ah, you know, I'm I'm published in this and to, to show it off and to have like a physical hard copy of something. This thing that I thought was going to define myself and my career as a writer doesn't. And maybe it's because I'm not using it to continue to make those connections and networking with people, which is something that you're also supposed to do. You're really supposed to advertise and ingratiate yourself to the fact that you've been published and push that publication so that it is spread and is seen. And I I feel very strange doing that because it feels like that I need to uphold a part of a deal that I didn't know that I was getting into when I signed on. So my apologies to any publications who I haven't pulled my weight with (laughs) after the fact. My family may be proud of me. My friends may be cheering me on, but I don't know what kind of reach I have. And you kind of remain just as anonymous as you were before. The real benefit is that you get to see other people who were published in that and get to read their work and be like, oh, hey, this is amazing. Maybe I'll follow you on Instagram. Maybe I'll find you at the next WGA meeting that I attend. But I don't think the adrenaline rush or the thrill that I I thought it was going to be Somebody in my social circle at one point put out the stats that she had, and she had been published to such a great degree that it was almost as though she had that social media cue and was just daily sending out things. And that's, A, a a hell of a lot of work, uh, and B, involves having a hell of a lot of writing, which I don't have. I have very small pieces of writing and a small amount of them that I kind of hoard preciously like a dragon until I can find (laughs) ideally the place to send them to. And I think that was a realization is that in order for small publications, I think, to accumulate and and have that kind of impact that we assume they're going to have, you need to be a much more prolific writer than I am. I need to be a much more prolific submitter than I am. And that's been interesting because I was like, oh, no, finally, when I get published, when I get when I get out there, when I see myself in print, that's going to be it. That's going to define me. That's going to be the, the rush that I need. And it's not. I might never submit anything again because I don't need to. I mean, I will, because I like hunting to do it, and I will continue to write, but it's not the definitive thing that I thought it was going to be. We find the channels that work for us, right? And our Mm -hmm. individual paths. Like, I've had people say to me, wow, you did this big project. How proud of you, of yourself are you? Always, every time I'm like, I did it, but like, what's next? To me, I don't, I'm not going to rest on this one thing I did and be like, I'm set, girl. Like, I have the rest of my life carved out for myself it's like no like some people do which i think is a problem personally it's my opinion but people attach themselves to their work it's like of course mm. it's a part of you but release your little baby into the wild and then see how it does and then see what it brings back down the road don't be like so don't be a helicopter mom over your little children you know <laughs> let them fly <laughs> oh my god i i agree like i think that I disagree to a certain extent, which is that I do feel like if somebody publishes one thing and goes, you know what, I'm done, like good for them. Why Mm -hmm. not? Why not take that approach? But I also definitely, it resonates with me, this idea that, okay, you get something published or you get many things published and suddenly that will validate you as a writer. Like you get a knock on your door and there's somebody there with a certificate, like a scroll and they open it and they go, (laughs) you're a real writer now. And then you're like, yeah. (laughs) And confetti falls from the ceiling. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. And one of those oversized checks for some reason, but it's still just like $10. Because yeah. Small <laughs> press that you publish too. Yeah. So like, I definitely understand that. And I think that it reminds me so much. I was thinking about this on our break as well of the conversation we had with Lizelle Sanbury, whose forthcoming novel Blood Like Magic is out the summer of 2021. And she had a similar experience where she approached her route to publication she was like I wanted to write YA fantasy and for some reason I felt the best way to do this was to publish in literary journals like publish short fiction in literary journals and then at some point she was like what the fuck am I doing like this is not getting me any closer to the actual goal which is to write a fucking book she didn't (laughs) drop the f-bomb that's my editorializing but you know what I mean (laughs) indirect quote (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. And I think that's such a thing. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying before, which is about how you have this idea for how things should go and how you should move these through these channels and point A, point B, point C, et cetera. But is that really what you want? Does it mean as much to you as you think it means, you know what I mean, to an external audience? And I actually really like your approach, which is that 
if you're someone who enjoys hunting down submission opportunities and that's part of the fun of it for you, why not do that? But having to like, I've been in that exact spot where I'm like looking at publications and I'm going, yeah, I should be submitting more and I should be writing more. And then realizing, well, actually it's a numbers game in a lot of ways. And you have to produce so much writing and then you're submitting the wider you cast your net, the more opportunity or the more chance there is of a response or a positive response, at least many of those opportunities may not be paid. And it, Mm -hmm. essentially what you're doing is just guaranteeing yourself one of those really nifty gravestones that said the artist died of exposure. Like you're not yeah. getting compensated. You're doing the work and people might know who you are, but is it moving things forward toward your definition of success? And I think that comes back to playing the game and the compromises that we make in the sense that all of those new and upcoming names and those like undiscovered individuals who suddenly get picked up and have a short story in the New Yorker or Fiddlehead, I'm trying to think of a Canadian equivalent. Prairie um, Fire. Prairie Fire, yeah. Are not as unknown as we ever think they are. Right. All of these people who get picked up by larger magazines do not just pop out of the ground as mm -hmm. in a complete vacuum. They, in fact, have done some of that work and have done some of that prolific writing. And, and so, again, no shame to them at all whatsoever. They have put in the work, they've put in the time and the effort and the energy, but they have a small list of accolades behind their name that signals to those larger publishers and to those larger names that they are worth noticing. And that's where the purpose and the start of these small presses, I think, becomes ingrained into that step A, B, C linear process, which is that you don't just get noticed by an agent for a publishing house without having started with smaller presses. And so, I mean, like the real heroes then of this narrative are the small presses who take a complete risk on the complete unknowns, who just get thousands and hundreds of unsolicited work in their inboxes and are run oftentimes by volunteer readers mm -hmm. and slush pile sifters who then are making decisions based on the best criteria that they have for these writers' careers. And there's a ton of respect for that as Renee, with your background as a slush pile reader yourself, you would know like that's a lot of work. It's a ton of work for the volunteers and the part of it that is I'm just going to speak from my own experience and I'm not going to name any names, but the part of it that I found most frustrating was that we honored that unspoken code of if this person knows somebody at the publication, if they've been published before it, they get fast tracked. And that to me was like, if I could have exploited that great, but I also would have felt gross about it in some way because what I would see is like okay we would take maybe a rough cut gem from the pile on the the pretext that this was somebody that we had published before and we could work with them to buff it up but I saw stories with a lot of originality premise and I want to say like diversity diversity of viewpoint and diversity of background that just got thrown out with the bathwater essentially because they needed a little bit more polish on them but I was like why are we checking these out like this is a fresh take this is a fresh story it's a fresh viewpoint it speaks to something else that we haven't seen before why wouldn't we work with the author to make it the best version of the story that we could when we're doing the same for like the straight white dude who's 50 that we have published six times already. Right. <laughs> like, and, so, and so it already is built into the industry or built into the system at that point is that you either are playing it safe with people that you know, yeah, or maybe people who are better on that reciprocal end, you know, that author that's been published six times, maybe has done a better job of advocating for the press or of advocating for the, for the people that he's worked with. And advocating for the story too, because we would mm -hmm. get emails, like I would reject stuff and we'd get emails back because- the author felt entitled to say, actually, I don't think you gave my story a fair critique. And do you want to guess what the demographic of those email senders was? Yeah. It was really skewed. And then also the arbiter of taste was ultimately the editor in chief who was presenting one very specific point of view and background and using that to bring to bear on the selections. 
small presses can avoid some of the nastiness of that it's still there you still have the the favoritism or the nepotism or the biases however you want to phrase it and so therefore first and always you know I'm very grateful for the fact that anything of mine ever has been published so that I've had the opportunity to work with that because going back to Gio's point that's how you learn yeah. Mm-hmm. I have had excellent experiences with editors where my work felt very respected, where my work felt very much as though it was being crafted and polished and made to be the best that it could be. And I was fully in control of that. Any decision, any change was completely within what my consent for that was. And I've also had awful editing experiences where I was like, no, how dare you? Uh, I'm, I, I would rather withdraw my publication from this than, than have you make all of these changes without even asking if you can do so that's a choice that I was in the position to make. And because I think, again, being published has ceased to define me as a writer, I I can choose that. Someone who feels that being published is the only way that they're going to be defined as a writer may run into those kind of really compromising problems and look back on their work. And as much as we are supposed to let our babies go, look at it and go, I hate this. And that would be an awful feeling, I think, for somebody. It's worth it to peel back the curtain on what the process is so that especially like young, nascent, burgeoning, emerging writers, whatever descriptive word you want to use, they understand what the bargain is that they're entering into with publishing. Because I think that there is a very one-sided perspective on publishing, which is that this will validate me as a writer. And I know that for myself, I held that belief for a really long time. (laughs) And now that I've had a little story that I wrote off the cuff printed on the side of a beer can, my perspective has changed a lot, but it was a long time coming already. Like I had already gotten to a point where I was like, is this validating me? Is this really what I need to call myself a writer and claim space for myself that way? Or can I get that in different forms? So I talked a little bit about this at the top um, when we were introing you, and that's that you and I know each other through the New Cambrians, which is a group that you put together and that you marshal every <laughs> couple of weeks for book club sessions and writing exercises. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you have the idea for it? How did it come together and how has it evolved over time and where do you see it going? The New Cambrians is actually, as of this month, three years old now, I've just come to realize, which is incredible. I mean, three years is a long time commitment for something, and this hasn't felt like any of the work that it, most things that have been three years feel like for me, so... (laughs) Uh, so shout out to to the Cambrians for their anniversary for that. At the time that I started the New Cambrians, I was a member of the Bolotai Collective at McEwen and was really thriving off of this sense of having structure for my creativity in an academic setting, uh, likewise with having the networking that, that came with that. And I enjoyed that very much, but I knew eventually that my time with that group would come up because I would graduate and then you just don't become a lingering, hanging on member of something at a post-secondary university. No one wants to be that person. (laughs) So I thought, oh boy, I got to do something for myself. Simultaneously with that, just with the simple desire of this was a good thing for me, I would like to continue it. I was also noticing in my friends group, all of whom I have a long history with from about 2008 onwards as a result of attending the Youth Right writing camp that was at one point run through WGA, I think still is. Some of us were struggling. Some of us were feeling very lonely. Some of us were feeling very uninspired. And really as though this thing that we loved and were passionate about has either abandoned us or had in some way contributed to some negativity that we were experiencing in our lives. And I thought, this is bullshit. I'm not going to stand for this. I will single-handedly raise up some of these people if I have to holding them by the throat yes Uh, i I do have friend energy yes i do everything violently (laughs) um, (laughs) when i'm passionate about it and so i was like this is it i'm gonna grab you and you're going to come and that was kind of where it started too because i thought okay what if we had a thing what if we had a thing where you could just come and have friends and could just come and have friends who wrote and who understood what your struggle was and who understood what it was like to hit writer's block and who could support you through that and comment on that. And, and that was it. So I sat down and I thought, geez, you know, what do I like? I like 
dicking around with fonts that look like Times New Roman, but that aren't and will fly under a professor's radar. So <laughs> Cambria came up and I thought, hey, that's also like an old name for whales, isn't it? I like whales. So the new Cambrians was a thing. And uh, it was close friends and my partner. And I had different plans for what it was going to be. At one point, we were going to have an anthology and I was going to prove that, oh, you know, you know, a bunch of ragtag blues I almost said blues notes. <laughs> what I meant to say was blues clues. Uh, what I meant to say was grassroots, not bluegrass, not blues notes. A grassroots ragtag group of people can come together and publish something, and it's not going to be that hard or that difficult. And jokes on me, it totally is that hard and that difficult, especially when you've only been doing stuff for a month together and people have very different writing styles and very different senses of how to edit. So the anthology may never happen. <laughs> it might, but right now it's not. Everything in its own time. What the group has become in the three years uh, has not just been a place to get writing prompts and to learn about um, submission opportunities because that was other the big thing. I was like, if people in my life are feeling like they're not real writers. What's gonna make them feel like writers? Submitting their work, maybe getting published. That was always a core tenet of what it was that I wanted to do was to, to provide access and to provide opportunities, especially because at the time I was looking around like, oh, you know, like I wanna go to this workshop. Holy shit, this two hour workshop is a hundred some dollars. I don't have that. The people in my life who aren't working absolutely don't have that what can I Frankenstein together to make us feel like we have access to resources and to people and to just concepts that is exhausting for individuals to try and find on their own but if you mm -hmm. come every other Sunday somebody has done it for you mm -hmm. but the emotional support group aspect of the club has really I think Huge. become what it is because when we get together yeah, sure. We talk about what it is that we're reading. We talk about what it is that we're writing, if we're writing. And if we're not, that's fine. If we're not reading me, then that's fine. But the other big two questions that we have are what do you need support with or what can we celebrate with you? And so people tell us about good things that have happened in their lives that may have nothing to do with writing. And they tell us about things that have happened in their lives that may or may not have had anything to do with writing, but that they're struggling with or that, I mean, people have cried in our meetings. Mm -hmm. People have have completely let go and we have been there for each other, um, whether in person or as we are doing right now through, through a digital means. And that has been very powerful. And I think that has kept us together and folks have entered the group and folks have left the group, but by and large, it is growing. And I think that speaks to the need that this community locally has of not creating in isolation and not creating in a vacuum and just as those fanfic comments are like the highest, most valuable form of currency, having that same kind of commentary or community within your own sphere is very valuable and very necessary. And again, is one of those things that we don't talk about. When I entered my education degree, it was one of the first things I remember being told was that this is a lonely career. Make friends now while you're in school, because you are not going to be able to once you actually get a job. And I think the same applies for writing. It's very lonely if you don't have anybody with you. And especially if you don't have anybody who understands the process of writing. The New Cambrians, like I can speak to my own experience, that was my first introduction to like an actual dedicated collective of people who are all kind of like in this together and not in the way that the fucking pandemic commercials say that. Like it <laughs> legit feels like a community because I always had friends when I was in undergrad, I made friends with people and I would sort of say on the sly, you know, like, I like to write a little bit, like for funsies, I mean, and then so sort of throw out the lure, if you will, to see if anybody would take the bait and respond. And I made friends with people who liked to write for fun and were passionate about it and even enjoyed it and pursued it past our undergrad. But a lot of them have dropped off because it was just because life, because they're like, I don't see myself as having a talent for this. I don't have enough of a passion. Too many of everyday things have gotten in the way. I decided to have kids. I decided to get married. And now my partner takes up the bulk of my time, whatever. Like I'm working full-time. I just can't find the headspace. So to me, the new Cambrians 
honestly, it's so validating, even coming together and hearing people say, I haven't been able to write a word. That was huge for me after my dad died, because I kind of took a little break because I was, it was too raw. There was too much. I was like a furless Furby. Okay. There was too much exposed surface area. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't even interface with people who aren't clay and my dogs. Like that's just, it's not happening for me. But then when I came back, I was like, if I didn't have this group, I feel like it would have taken me so much longer to find my way back to writing so much longer because I was actually able to connect and speak about what I cared about again and be validated and seen in the sense where it's like just having somebody here that I'm having a hard time and I'm not able to write and say, yep, yeah, that sucks. I've been there it gave a sense of closure to me where I was able to kind of like close that box and go, okay, now you're ready to start again. And that's huge. Like being seen in that way, being recognized, massive impact. I'm going to, I'm going to start crying. Don't cry. Um, <laughs> cry, 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 cry. <laughs> the two genders, is that what this is? Gio <laughs> is here for the drama. <laughs> I like I'm like silent for like 15 minutes and then that's the one thing I say <laughs> I, uh, I also like Renee your your sense of putting the lure out because like I, I think we all we all do that we all kind of like subtly try and hint that we do things to see if we're in a safe space dimension it's like it's like um what's the joke like you you see a pretty girl and you say I like your hair and that's supposed to be the code to see if she's going to be receptive or not yes yes I love to ask this question. We ask it with every one of our guests now, and it's like my favorite. If you had to look back at the trajectory of your creative life so far and give it a theme, what would it be and why? You know, I looked at this question and I had two answers that I thought were going to be great. One was embracing mediocrity. (laughs) Yes. Love that. The other was self-acceptance, which I mean is essentially in my case, embracing mediocrity. But really what I think the answer is on the theme is define expectations. I have defied the expectations that were put on me by the group that voted me most likely to have a book published in my high school yearbook, because it's probably not going to happen. I have defied the expectations of myself by completely switching gears and becoming a poet instead of a long form writer. I have defied expectations by becoming most prolific in my fan fiction than in any other form of writing that I've ever done. I am past 50,000 words from just this July and I show no signs of stopping. That's so awesome. here we are. And I think that's okay. Cause I've also defied the expectations of what my definition of success was going to be. And I continue to be relieved and liberated by not clinging to what those preconceived notions of being a writer and what being a successful writer are going to be. If the rest of my life is spent handling people's garbage as the job that I do, being able to afford nice books, nice wine, being able to have time to read and time to write, that's actually really fulfilling. And that's not at all what I expected of myself to be able to say at this time in my life. And in fact, is exactly what failure would have been defined as by me five years ago. I totally resonate with that. I totally resonate with that because I'm in a place that I never thought I would be, but the joy that I get out of it is shocking to me every day and very gratifying in a way that I think if I had met, you know, like 14 year old me's vision of where I wanted to see myself, I I don't know that I would be as happy. But also keep in mind that 14 year old you didn't have that much life experience. So the idea of what it was to be a writer or how to get to that point is very limited. (laughs) Yes, yes, very much so. For 14-year-old me and 14-year-old Renee and and maybe even for 14-year-old Gio, (laughs) if I could change anything about this whole experience, it would be to broaden that awareness and to stop the secret keeping about this. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't want people to learn for themselves or, or to go through that growth process, because you're going to. 14-year-old me was an absolute little shit. 21-year-old me was an absolute little shit. By the time I hit 40, me as I am right now was going to be an absolute little shit. Um, we do change, <laughs> but I, I would like the mystery of it, and I would like the disappointment when the veil does get pulled off to be Mm -hmm. less because I think it's that it's the realization that the world is not what you think it is and the world is a lot more unfair than you think it is that turns people off and that makes people abandon this thing that they love that they don't have to 
people who are community builders like you are the ones who are there to offer a salve for that disappointment. And I think we need more people to approach their careers, especially in creative fields, not from a mindset of scarcity, like there's not enough for everyone to get a piece of this. So I have to distinguish myself, but rather how can I translate what I love most about making things in this realm into the way that I foster connections with the other people who feel the same because we have those sparks. Those sparks are things that unite us and we truly have it within us to realize happiness and success from a different angle, not by being the most vaunted, not by being the most lauded, but by creating these networks of people who feel seen with their Mm. sparks. You don't survive unless you have a community, I think, Mm -mm. or it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Honestly, Emily, this was phenomenal. Clearly, we're going to have to have you back for part two at some point because there is so much here. Part two is just me talking about my smutty fanfic. Fuck yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I would love that. Honestly, if we could do like a fanfic panel episode, that would be incroyable. I would love that so much. Thank Thank you you so so much much. for having me. And I will see you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Yes. I'm picking up the book club book today. Yes. Awesome. Oh, I removed her, but I don't, it, Zoom was like, is she offensive? And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know how Zoom works. I'm sorry. Anyway. What a lovely interview. That was so great. Honestly, I have thrived so much since I met the new Cambrians. And I have Mm -hmm. to say shout out again to Sophie Pinkowski for inviting me into the group and introducing me to everyone because they're just great. Thanks for listening to me. And me. And if you have any burning questions or you want to share your archive of our own handle with us, please email us at listen to me podcast at gmail.com or direct message us on social media. We adore working on listen to me and all of the feedback we get from listeners like you about what resonates. So if you want more, check out our Patreon for all of the listen to me related things we're making. You can check us out on the socials as well at listen to that's the number two me pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, you can let us know by rating this podcast and subscribing. Music in this episode is graciously provided by audionautics.com. Bye. Bye. Great.